Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey everybody, welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. It's great to be back making some more episodes for you. Thanks for tuning in once again. And uh, yeah, just summer is winding down and it's time to kick back in for season three, the potentially never-ending season, which I'm excited about. Uh, It's been a long, busy, good, fruitful musical summer. I put out an album at the beginning of the summer called Lucky Hand. It was really fun to make with a string quartet in Vancouver. And uh, then I've been touring a bunch with an awesome band called Birds of Chicago, and uh, I'm continuing to tour with them through the fall. Watch for them. They're a really, really great band, and they're fun to play with, and uh, they're going to be touring all across the States and Canada this fall. All right, on to this week's show. To kick off the season is my conversation with Jorma Kaukinen, the great electric and mostly acoustic guitarist in the last bunch of years. He was, of course, a member of the Jefferson Airplane and one of the founders of the great Hot Tuna. So for me, as a youngster, as a kid growing up in Canada, getting into like, I didn't really have, um, you know, a ton of music around the house or whatever, but uh, I did a lot of exploring myself and I got into the Jefferson Airplane in like grade eight or something and from there there was a song on their big hit record surrealistic pillow that i got at probably a garage sale for 25 cents and uh i i always dug that record and of course it has a lot of big hits on it but it also has this wicked acoustic guitar piece called embryonic journey that i was fascinated by and actually that that song on that record was sort of a gateway for me to a lot of acoustic music that i got into in a pretty heavy way So through Yorma, I kind of heard about the people that he was digging 
such as Reverend Gary Davis, Mississippi John Hurt, and Blind Blake, and people like that, I dove down those rabbit holes pretty deeply. So it's kind of one step through Yorma to all those kind of people. And he's got such a great story to tell, of course, through his work with Jefferson Airplane and all his great recordings with Hot Tuna. Now, Yorma is still really active. I saw him at Folk Alliance, uh, a festival in, uh, where was it? Kansas City, I guess, last year. And man, he sounds awesome. He sounds pretty much exactly like he did in 19... 72 or whatever year it was that that first Hot Tuna record came out. So if you get a chance to see Yorma, make sure you do that. And now one other really interesting thing that he's just done is released a a, a new autobiography, and it's called Been So Long, My Life in Music. It's by Yorma Kalkinen. I highly recommend it. And of course, he tells all kinds of great stories in that book, some of which you'll hear today, although I got to say it's pretty fun to hear him tell them in person in his own voice. But get that book, read all his crazy stories about the San Francisco scene in the 60s, all the way up through his current recordings. And I'd like to also thank Cash Edwards, who is Yorma's manager, I believe, uh, for helping to set this up. So that's about it. I'm not going to give you a huge amount of bio information on Yorma Kalkinen. You can look it up for yourself on the old worldwide interweb if you need to. Before we get going, I just need to shout out to a bunch of people that have been contributing financially to the podcast over the summer, especially uh, sticking with it in the downtime when I haven't been releasing episodes. I have been hard at work producing them, of course, but uh, these people have been kicking in over the summer and I do appreciate it. So those people are Adam Warner, Allison Russell, Carol Anderson, Chris Locke, Daniel Walker, Donald Cohen, Edward Gagnon, Eric Eder, Jeff Kuluwick, George Fielding. Gerald Bailey, Greg Herman, Hunter Bergamy, James Bradbury, Jim Campbell, John Rhodes, Kenneth Eckert, Laurie Thick, Lincoln Barr, Matt Dixon, Michael Brown, Mike Roberts, Rob Wood, Rune Jensen, Shelley Hessen, and a guy named Steve. It's not me. It's just some guy named Steve. That's the only name I have. Good name. Thanks, buddy. All right. Those people have been kicking in five bucks a month or more on the Patreon page, and I just wanted to thank them personally. Thanks, guys. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. Uh, You can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page, and right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, Also, this year we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca, podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. Well, thanks so much for doing this. This is, uh, it's very cool to speak with you. I've been a fan of yours for years. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm glad it's working out. Like I said, I, it's in, I, I knew I had, for some, I never mind. It doesn't matter. We're, we're talking. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy sometimes to hook these things up. So it's, it's great. All right. I had a brain fart. <laughs> well, I'm, I'll, I'll just dive right in and, uh, um, yeah, sure. you know, we'll, we'll talk till you got to go and just let me know when you got to go. And, okay. and, uh, and that's fine. I'm a, I'm a guitar player and I came to, a lot of the music that I love now through you actually, like, and, and other people as well, but, uh, you know, that first, that first live hot tuna record when I was kind of getting into like sixties rock and stuff when I was a kid, uh, 
you know, I, I, I dug the airplane stuff and, and, and that was a, a thing for me as well. But when I heard that first live hot tuna record, that kind of turned me on to, you know, blind Blake and Reverend Gary Davis. And it really like opened my ears to that kind of music and you were doing it so authentically and with, with love and respect. Um, so I, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about your history with that kind of music, you know, with, with the finger style, uh, blues guitar playing and, sure. and who some of your, big influences were and how and how you got into it because there was for you there was nobody like you there was no like guy bringing it back you were no. you were right there in the middle of it with the original guys i didn't learn to finger pick until like 1959 1960 and when i started doing that i doubt there were there, there probably weren't 10 well-known finger pickers in the united states other than maybe merle travis maybe chad atkins but he yeah. did it and he's not they're not really the same bank that we're talking about and now it's a way of life, you know, so that's a good thing. So what happened for me is I got turned on to the blues way before I could play by my friend Jack Cassidy's older brother. But, you know, we never, oh. we never saw those guys. And that wasn't figure style stuff. That was like Chicago blues. And okay, okay. so I'd never really seen any of that guy's plays. But then I'd, I'd had a chance to see, to see Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee uh, in D.C. when I was a kid. And, and there's other stuff. There's something about the music. When I went back to Antioch College in 1960, after a co-op job that I'd done, one of my housemates, this, this off-campus house we had, was a guy named Ian Buchanan. And Ian Buchanan was a brilliant finger picker. He's passed away a long, long time ago. And if you don't know about him, you don't know about him because he didn't really record. And he, I think that out of... I think that my obnoxious thrashing on the guitar compelled him <laughs> compelled him to take me under his wing. Okay. He wasn't a very sociable guy, uh, and, and he was not a student of Reverend Davis's. He was, they were friends. And his, his muse was Lonnie Johnson. Lonnie Johnson, okay. so much more sophisticated, quarterly, and harmonic. Yeah. It was just over my head at the time. Anyway... But there's something about him, and he played these reverent songs. And he took me under his wing, and one of the first songs that I learned, he called it Dancing, but the reverend copyrighted it, Sally, where'd you get your liquor from? And, and a bunch of other stuff. Actually, every song that's on that first Hot Tuna record, with the exception of the two songs that I wrote, New Song for the Morning and, uh, and, um, and Man's Fate, Every one of those songs was one of the first songs that I learned from Ian. And in one of the reissues, and, and, and I should have dedicated it to him then, but I was able to make it up by one of the later reissues by saying, look, if it wasn't for Ian, none of us would be having this, this conversation. And in any case, yeah. so he, and the funny thing about all that was, uh, I, I had an Antioch co-op job and I worked in New York that summer of 1960 for four months at a spinal cord damage hospital and just hang, hung out in the village and played and played hoots and tried to learn, learn, learn. But anyway, so the funny thing was is that when we did the Hot Tuna record and we recorded Hesitation Blues, I didn't even know that was a Reverend Gary Davis arrangement. Well, the, you know, I added some Yorma stuff to it, but I mean, you know, the Reverend, that's pretty much the Reverend thing. I mean, he kind of did it that way, but I learned it from Ian. And, if you, and since you're a guitar player, you'll appreciate the geekiness of this. Um, 
Reverend is a two-finger picker with his right hand. Yeah. And when I started to learn, because Ian was more of a three-finger picker, he could do it with two fingers, and he kind of gave me the op- the unspoken option to do it either way, and it just didn't make sense for me to do it with two fingers because it was so much harder. And, and, yeah, yeah. and because I sort of had an innate desire to trip with figures, they were hard to play. Oh, mm-hmm. two fingers. Anyway, to get back to the, the thrust of this, so so I just immersed myself in Reverend Davis's music. Now, at the time, the two records that were available that I got, that I, that I listened to, were yeah. the one he split with Pink Anderson on Riverside, uh, he's Reverend Davidson on one side, Pinky Anderson on the other, and the first, and the Harlem Street Singer album, the Prestige Blues Bluesville album that Rudy Van Gelder recorded in uh, in New Jersey, and those those were my source for material uh, because after I left New York, I never really got a chance to hear the Reverend play again, and there weren't a lot of tapes and stuff floating around. We didn't have YouTube back right. then. Brownie McGee, yeah. Brownie McGee, in those early, uh, in those early, you know, pre-rock and roll days, Brownie had a ten-inch LP on folkways, just him playing solo guitar, and I did all those songs. I can't remember. I wish I could. Remember. I wish I kept up on it. Now, the, the people that I know that I personally know that are alive today, Happy Traum does that Brownie stuff, just like Brownie. Right, and it's awesome. Right. Anyway. So, so Brownie yeah. McGee, and of course you listen to things like John Lee Hooker and a lot of the other stuff, and maybe we sort of bagged some of the grooves when rock and roll came around. But yeah. as far as influencing me directly, back then in the beginning it was Reverend, uh, Ian of course, uh, May Rest yeah. Peace, and uh, Reverend and Brownie, I think those were probably the two most significant records for me. What about Blind Blake? Because I hear a lot of Blind Blake in your like in your bass playing. Well, my Blind Blake came. To, I mean, I've listened to a lot of Blind Blake since then, but at the time, okay, my, the Blind Blake stuff that I got was transliterated through Ian, and the two tunes were West Coast Blues and That'll Never Happen No More. Now, since then, of course, you know I've listened to a lot of Blind Blake, and I realized that my version of West Coast Blues is such a baby step, steps version. And also, <laughs> if you think about it, you know, Blind, uh, I mean, uh, Blind Blake is playing all this really complex stuff. It's like a rap song. I mean, it, it, there's no lyrics yeah, it's to incredible. That. Yeah, it's incredible. Right. Yeah, yeah, it is absolutely incredible. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's Blind Blake in there, too. But again, that's, that's through Ian. So can you just back up, and I, I just want to talk about the Reverend for, for a second. Sure, absolutely. I, I spoke with David Bromberg about this as well, actually, uh, a few weeks back, and I'm, I'm really curious, like, as a fan and as, like, a music nerd, what was that like, actually, like, hanging with the Reverend and taking lessons from him? Like, what was the actual day like where you would go over to his place? Well, see, I never took lessons from the Reverend. Uh, oh, you didn't? Okay, I, you just I, I saw never did. Play. I just watched him. Uh, again, like, and... And, and Ian, who could play all the reverence stuff, too, was not like um, Stephen Grossman or, 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 uh, uh, or, or Ernie up there in Pittsburgh uh, or, or Bromberg, you know. So yeah. when, when I was that foremost, you know, it's amazing what a short period of time and how important it could be in one's life. That four months in New York, that summer of 1960, 
changed my life in very profound ways. And as a result of Ian being Reverend's buddy rather than one of his quote-unquote boys or students, you know, so I got a chance right. to see him play and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the Reverend was influ so influential to me in a lot of ways, a little bit different from, from David and stuff like that. Interestingly enough, I don't know what it was that attracted me so much, not to not just to his guitar music, but to his lyrics as well. And again, yeah. again, looking back on it, I mean, you know, from a guy from a non-observant Jewish family, it's kind of odd that so many of us listen so much to fundamentalist Christian music, you know? But, <laughs> totally. But, yeah. but, but we did. But we did. And I think for the Reverend, one of the things that really appealed to me was his absolutely, profoundly powerful love of life. I mean, you know, all the songs, I mean, Death Don't Have No Mercy, throwing not the happiest song in the world, Bad Company Brought Me Here, whatever, you know. But, but when I heard in the Reverend's music, and keep in mind, this is an almost 80-year-old guy talking now, analyzing what he thinks he felt, you know, 50, 60 years ago, yeah. you know. But, yeah, I get but, it. But I think what I got from it was just the fact that there's going to be a brighter day. And I believe that, you know. And the Reverend, for a guy who yeah, certainly man. lived a hard life in a lot of ways, there always was a brighter day. Did, did you read that new biography of his, Say No to the Devil? I haven't read it yet. No, I just I just found out oh, about you it. Oh, you got to read it. It's it great. It's just great. It's just great. So you mentioned growing up in D.C., which which I, I sure. did know, and, and spending a bit of time in New York. Yeah. One thing that I'm really interested in, because I've spoken with a bunch of people that have long affiliations with other musicians, um, you know, whether it's a rhythm section or band bandmates or whatever, but sure. your relationship with, with Jack Cassidy, man, that's like, that kind of tops them all. Like, uh, yeah. you guys go back 50, 50 some odd years. I, I don't know exactly how long, but uh, can you talk about your early days with him and musically and friendship-wise? Sure. Right, exactly. Well, Jack, Jack is my oldest, my oldest living friend. We started playing together in 1958. Holy shit. And I know. And, and it's, you know, and, you know, we've gone off into other, other things over the years, but he's still my oldest friend, and I can't imagine life without him on some levels, you know? Yeah. Uh, and Jack's older friend, Chick, was the guy that turned me on to blues in the first place. But he wasn't a player. Uh, Jack was studying jazz guitar. Oh. Uh, and we just, we just, even before I was really, he played guitar before I did. And before, before I started to play, there was just something. There's just something that made us kindred spirits. My dad was in the service. And I traveled around a lot. When I came back from uh -huh. Philippines in 1950, in 1958, uh, because I wanted to do my senior in high school in D.C., my old high school, and I got back together with some of my old friends. There's this one guy, Mike Oliver, who was playing the guitar, and he's the guy that gave me my first guitar lessons. And I learned some Carter family stuff and Lubin Brothers and this and that. And then, okay. and then Jack and I realized that we could have a band, how hard could it be? You know? <laughs> so, and so in our first band, Jack was the lead guitar player. I played rhythm guitar okay. and sang 
good. And then we had a guy, uh, when we could afford a bass player, we had one. We had a guy that played the drums. One of the funny things is, is that if I look at my life as a guitar player, I sort of became a guitar player accidentally. That was never my goal in the beginning. I just wanted to sing the songs. And in order to do oh, that, really? in order to do this, I needed to learn enough rhythm stuff to yeah. say to play and sing the songs. And so so the so the, the whole groove thing was always important to me in the beginning. We weren't even a garage right. band. We were because my grandfather's car was the garage. We were a living <laughs> band. We used to rehearse in my grandparents' living room. It was hilarious. <laughs> and so, what were you playing? Like, were you playing like surf tunes and stuff, or what? What was going on? No, so we played. We played Buddy Holly. We, we actually did some originals too, because we had another singer in the band uh, who got us gigs. He got in the band because he could get us gigs. Uh, okay, that's a good guy to have in the band. Have, yeah, you bet. And he wrote songs also. We made we we made a recording. He financed a recording. We cut a 78, and I think I have the last remaining copy of this extremely limited edition record. Really? Yeah, his name is yeah, Phil Covell. I have a, uh-huh. Who knows where Phil is today? hope he's still telling stories about this. <laughs> so, so, so up, up in, my, in my, my shop, I've got the last remaining copy of Magic Key and Symbol of Our Love. And it is such an archetypal 50s record Jack's roomed reverb drenched guitar solo. I mean, it, it it could have been any of it. Could have been Jimmy Clamp. Really? Has that ever been released, or has it always just been a thing that you've had and, and never put out? I just always been. No, no, it's never been released. Okay. It's always been a thing I've had. Neat. But but anyhow, to get back to this thing with Jack, so we, you know, I remember, you know, we just were friends. We played together. Mm-hmm. We got in trouble together. Sure. You know, we got we got stopped by the police for drinking and driving, and back in back in the day when when a field sobriety checkpoint point was being able to say yes, sir, convincingly, <laughs> and and promising you'd go right home. Uh huh. And so, so Jack's just been my bug forever. Right. Now people people occasionally wonder, and and I, when I start to blab, I'm hard to shut up. So if you got something to say, just interrupt me, and I'm good with that. Okay, blab away. Okay. Well, in any case. So, 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 so Jack and I, you know, when I had never heard him play bass, when I got him to come to San Francisco to be an airplane. Yeah. But Jack is such an articulate and for lack of a better world, utterly anal guy. <laughs> I knew that he was going to be great. And when I picked him up at the airport in San Francisco, when we, when we brought him out to replace Bob Hardy, yeah. My first words were, as he got off the plane with his bass, you better know how to play this thing. <laughs> he just smiled. <laughs> and and, and as, we, as we know, he didn't let me down. No way, man. Yeah, he kicked ass. So so had he been playing bass before he came out there, or was... was the... Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. what happened was, uh, you know, Jack... Oh, anyway, so we worked all these clubs back in those days. We got tied up with this guy named Mills Grant. It was our local... Uh, Dick Clark. He was our local Dick Clark. Uh-huh. And so so we had to join the union to do a lot of stuff. So Jack was in the union. Is, is this back in D.C.? Yeah, back in D.C. Okay. So so there were guitar players up the wazoo, ultimately. You know, when Danny Gadden burst on the scene, I mean, Danny was kind of like the go-to guy. Right. So Jack perceived at an early age 
that if you want to work, there's too many guitar players, I'm going to learn to play bass. And that's what he did. Yeah, that's a good reason to start. Yeah, Get the and even, even today, there's, there's still, I mean, listen, you know, on the one hand, you can't have too many guitar players, but if you're looking for a gig, it's easier if you're a bass player. <laughs> um, so what, what brought you, like, what made you make the move out to, um, to California, like to the Bay Area? Because you were, it seemed like you were well ensconced in the East Coast scene. Or Well, what happened was, uh, like I said, my, my, my parents were in the service, yep. and uh, the Foreign Service. So what happened was, is that I, uh, after that, that, that couple of years in Antioch, I did a, I did a, did a year at the, at the Ateneo University in the, Manila, in the Philippines. Oh. And when my parents' tour of duty was over and we're coming back to the States, I wanted to go to USF because there were beatniks there. And that looked like an appealing lifestyle okay. to me. Yeah. My grades, my, my grades weren't good enough, but I did get into the University of Santa Clara, which is 50, a little town 50 miles south. Right. And so, and so that's, why, that's why I went to California. And the first week that I was there, um, and this is a story that, that I tell a lot, but it's a true story. The first week when I was there, I'm walking around the campus. I saw a sign that said there's a hootenanny in San Jose, and I went, and that's the, the first night I played with Janice. No way. Way. <laughs> uh, had you met her before? No, she just showed up. I mean, this is my first week in, in California. I didn't know anybody. Holy shit. Uh, I know. And so how, like, how did you end up on stage with her? Like, what was that all about? Well, I mean, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the folk theater, uh, which is what it was called back then. It, um, it was like a tiny little, one of these little dark coffee houses. The stage was in a bay window, yeah. probably held 40 people. And, you know, and everybody, you know, played open mics or hoodnanners or whatever you want to call them all the time. And I just showed up there and, uh, and Janice was backstage and she was looking for somebody to back her. And we shared sort of a common background on the music. And that's, it. that's what we did. We just jumped on stage and played. Wicked. And did she have a band going or anything at that time? Or she was just like a kid? No, not at all. She wow. was just a solo, solo folk singer. At that point in your life, did you have aspirations to be a musician or were you just there studying and music was like a hobby on the side? No, music was... I think I studied for two reasons. One, uh, it was expected in my family that, yeah. that the kids would go to college. And two, keeping that student deferment was really important. Yeah, right. So, I don't, you know, it's really funny because I've got an 11-year-old daughter, and she's already talking about going to college and a career and all this kind of stuff. And a, and a 20, 20-year-old son, same thing. Uh-huh. I don't think I ever uttered the word career right. in my life until I quit the airplane and my father said, have you thought about this because you have a good career and a responsibility to your fans? I mean, it, it's, it's just, I oh, mean, yeah, I got a career. Yeah. It obviously dominated my life, but I really, it's really funny. I just don't think I thought about it like that, uh-huh. but, but to me, I think the music always came first Yeah, and it's a miracle that I was able to graduate from college. So you did actually, you saw that through and you got a degree. I did. I oh, got a okay. BA in sociology. No kidding. So the last bastion of the, of the liberal arts student that doesn't really want to study very much. <laughs> um, so tell me about how you got um, into the into the scene in San Francisco and how you met the guys in the airplane because they were already start sort of playing together when you joined, right? Well, yeah, but that but that but that didn't start then. That started in San Jose. 
Okay. Uh, Paul Kander, uh, when I when I went to the University University of Santa Clara, um, it was the first year that the school was co-ed. Now, mind you, I had already lived and worked on my own for a couple, you know for several months at a time over my life, and I actually have gotten to know women in a more intimate way than just running into them on campus, you know. <laughs> yeah. So the 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 old line guys who were at the University of Santa Clara, they were upset because it was a co ed school. And I remember thinking, have you guys lost your friggin' minds? <laughs> <laughs> I ran into this one guy named named Bob Kinsey, and he, he had a beard and sort of longish hair. And we looked at each other and we realized that we were kindred spirits. Mm-hmm. We both liked music. And his roommate from the year before I dropped out of school was Paul Cantor. Ah. Paul Cantor was living was living in in Santa uh, in the Santa Cruz at the time, and so and so I got to know Paul. There's already a sort of a burgeoning folk that the folk big folk scare is starting to happen. Right. And Paul was he was teaching music was teaching banjo at the Better Music Company in San Jose, and he got me a job teaching guitar there, oh, cool. which I did. Yeah. Well into, well into the first year that the airplane was together. So, so when, when Paul, when the folk scene was starting to atrophy in San Jose and Paul moved to San Francisco, that's when he met Marty and the other guys in the airplane started. And were you playing any electric guitar at at this point or were you just playing acoustic guitar? No, I was just playing acoustic guitar. Now, uh, I had, you know, you look at stuff you lucked into. I lucked into a 1937 L5 all maple, absolutely mint. It was under my friend's grandmother's bed. Nice. And a 1901 Princeton for 60 bucks. <laughs> and and so, and it had a DeArmond pickup on it. So I did play, sort of mess around with some guys when the rock and roll thing was before the airplane started to happen. Yeah. But to me, I differentiate between amplified guitar, which is what I did, yeah. and electric guitar, sure. where you start to, you know, stuff electric guitars do. So the answer, the simple answer to your question is no. And when I moved to San Francisco and I sold that guitar for two hundred and fifty bucks, nice profit. I thought, boy, what a killing I made! I'd have gone in the guitar business. That guitar would be worth twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah, man, you could retire off that shit now. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, you know, back in the old days, you know, vintage didn't exist. It was just old, and that was right. cheaper. Right, right. Old and grungy. Like, what year are we talking here? Where you moved to San Francisco, like sixty five? Yeah, I moved to San Francisco in '65. I graduated uh, graduated college in the in the spring of '65. Yeah, uh, Paul had, was already starting to get the ball rolling, and they uh, euchred me into coming up and trying out for the band. Uh, but why though? Like, if you were like an acoustic guy and an archtop guy, what made them think, "Hey, this would be the perfect guy for our band"? Well, that's a good question, <laughs> and I guess the I guess the answer is is that even before the airplane had the name Jefferson Airplane. It was an atypical bunch of guys. I mean, if you listen to the first airplane album, it takes off. Yeah. That's a folk rock album. Right. Now, the other album is a rock and roll album, but that's a folk rock album. And that's kind of the thrust of what they were doing. And Paul just figured that I'd fit in in some way. I'd never really played in a band before. Uh-huh. And, but the, the beauty of the, of the guys and gals that I played with and all the incarnations of the airplane was they always, we always gave each other the opportunity to find our way. Okay. So I so I got I got an on the job training. Yeah, yeah, nice. Um, so speaking of that first album, like how did that come about? Like, what was it like being a 
you know, like an independent band back in the, in the day, like it's sort of a whole different thing now, but like back then before you had a record deal, were you guys playing a lot of shows and, and like having a following and stuff like that? How did all that happen? Again, you know, it's a right, it's a right, right time, right place kind of thing too. But we had this manager, by the way, I'm glad we're having this conversation because I'll just mention that in in, in mid August, my 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 book, my memoirs are coming out, and all this stuff's in the book. I you know. can even read it. I know. I've I've heard I've heard all about it. Yeah, good. Any case, so we had we Marty brought us this manager whose name was Matthew Cates. Now he actually he actually the name is spelled Cats. Mm-hmm. For 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 a Jewish guy to pronounce Cats Cates, that's we might we we could spend an hour talking about that. But anyway, <laughs> Matthew Matthew actually was hooked up in some way. He knew people in, in the record business, blah, blah, blah. And he, we hooked up with him as a manager. We played all the time. We got all these gigs. And he, he got us gigs and we played. And he got us auditions. And he got us an audition for RCA, which got us that first record deal. What does that mean, an audition for RCA? Like, did you go into the office and play songs or did they come out to your show? Absolutely. Absolutely. You bet. Absolutely. Okay. We we did it we did it we did it for Phil Spector we did it for Capital we did it for all these guys, and and yeah yeah I mean it was that kind of stuff I don't think that stuff really exists anymore you know no, it doesn't because now my daughter my daughter can cut an album with GarageBand on her computer or, or on her iPhone yeah yeah you know but, but back then you needed to to record you needed a record deal so I mean this is such an archaic concept by today's standards yeah but back then it was it was a big deal totally. and so. For us, for us as a, as the atypical band that we were, and for somebody in RCA to think that these guys, these kids have a future is amazing. Right. Well, there was there you know there there was a lot going on around the the city. There was probably people signing bands partly just because they were from the area, like without like blindly signing bands. There's probably hundreds of them that got signed too that we've never heard of, right? Oh, well, that was much later, though. Yeah. Because we were, the, we were the first band that got signed. And I think as the, whatever you want to call it, the musical explosion in San Francisco happened, then they just, yeah, you're absolutely right. They started signing bands you probably never hear from again in a million years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do you remember much about your first sessions? Like for that first, for the debut airplane, the Jefferson Airplane takes off. Do you remember? Sure, sure, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, because it was so new to all of us, yeah. you know. Uh, and in the beginning, I think they would have preferred that we had like a like a studio band, like the Monkees did for their early records. Oh, really? Yeah. And just and just kind of, But to our credit, we stonewalled them on that, and that didn't happen. <laughs> and this guy named Tommy Oliver produced our first record. Uh, I can't remember who the engineer was. It might have been Dave Hassinger. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But it, but in any case. The, the the takes off sessions were done on a three track recorder. Nice, no noise reduction, so you had to nail your parts. And in those days, the, the, the three they, the three tracks weren't left, right, and center. They were there. They were really geared towards mono recordings, so you had a chance to to ping pong okay. tracks and collab tracks, which you could only do once or twice because then the tape degraded. Then the quality would go down, right? Absolutely. So, and if you did it too many times, then you had to cut the basic tracks over again. So since we had a very finite budget also, we rehearsed a lot and we really had to nail the, nail the, uh, the tracks as quickly as possible. Did you record it pretty much live as a band or were you doing it separately or how? Oh yeah. It? Okay. No, no, we, no, no, none of us could have, could have bricklaid. 
we, we did as much as we could live and then then overdubbed like some lead parts and stuff. Now on takes off, there's this I think I think it's a song called Come Up the Years. There's a Glockenspiel solo. Uh-huh. We did not play the Glockenspiel, but for the producer, we're gonna have a Glockenspiel. And I remember we went, What are you talking about? That sucks. <laughs> after this many years after the fact, I'm, it's so funny. I'm glad it's there. So anyway, but then so then I mean in that in that mindset for Surrealist Pillow that was our the album that is the reason that we're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Um that's four track, still no noise reduction. Wow. You know, no do no Dolby. So we cut the basics as live as possible. Yeah. Single takes for open dubs and single takes for Grace's vocal. I mean look looking back at it, it's unbelievable that we could that, that for guys that really didn't know what they were doing in the studio, that we could nail stuff like that. Yeah, was Grace tracking live with you guys as well, or did she overdub her vocals? Oh, no, no, she over she overdubbed her vocals, but but she could really only do it once. Right. I mean, again, if you listen to the, you know the good vinyl of that record, that's a great sounding record. Now, in that spirit, and as a guitar player, you'll appreciate this. On the on the two uh, the two solos for somebody to love and White Rabbit. I was just at that point. I'd been playing through a Standale Super Imperial because I saw the Love and Spoonful guys doing it. Oh yeah. Years later, John Ketchian told me we hated that shit. We just <laughs> did it because they endorsed us. <laughs> but anyhow, so the, so the lead guitar sound on those two songs is a solid state Standale Super Imperial two fifteen inch speakers. No lead guitar player in his right mind would volunteer. I mean, who who knows what we know today would pick that amp as a solo, but that's the sound. Those, those amps were sort of meant as steel amps, right? Well, I'm not sure what they were meant for, really. I, I guess they could have been. I think they were, because they were, they, were, they were big and powerful, and they were clean. Yeah, absolutely. Did you, were you using, uh, like, fuzz pedal? Like, you must have had a fuzz pedal or something, right? No, not, not back then. So, not yet. The, 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 sound, the sound that you're getting on that is overdriving the spring reverb channel. Oh, now, cool. Okay. And and then and the guy that the guy that told me about that because he knows about this stuff is my buddy G. E. Smith because he knows all this stuff. Right. And I thought about it. And I went, you're right. I mean, we had I had no idea what I was doing. I just messed with it until I got a sound that I thought I would like, and then went for it. Yeah. What about live? Were you using those standells live, or did did you have a different rig? For I used it. We used those standells live up until getting into surrealistic pillow, and that's when I switched over to using two twins because I was, I already started to play. Oh, um, actually. And I think that, I think the guitar I played on those solos was a, was a Gretsch, uh, Thunderbird. One of those things, again, Zalianovsky had one. Um, but I was just moving over into the, using a 345 stereo. And so I used one twin for one channel and one twin for the other. And as soon as I heard Clapton, with the with the uh, the Thomas Organ Company Crybaby, I got that for my lead channel, and then okay. I used then I used a Maestro fuzz tone yeah. for the for the next pickup until I got the Ampeg Scrambler. Okay. Speaking of the Ampeg Scrambler, I've just recently been able to find an original one because the reissues aren't the same. I don't even know what that is. What is the, is that a is that a fuzz pedal? Uh, sort of. You look it up sometime. You okay. really love it. Not exactly. It's actually it actually generates overtones. So oh. when you're think about it, the thing about it is it really, really like strings around the tenth or the fourteenth fret, 
and it's really only finds about strings two, three, uh, three, two, three, four, and five. Is it kind of like a ring modulator a little bit? Well, <laughs> sort of. There, there's an obnoxious pedal for you. Yeah, no kidding. But, <laughs> yeah, no. It just it just makes these singing. If you listen to the guitar sound uh, on Good Shepherd, mm-hmm. that high singing sound. That's a that's a an Ampex Scrambler. Okay. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. As a guitar player, like you've been playing acoustic and you've been doing all this finger style and Reverend Gary. And then all of a sudden right. in the mid sixties, you know, like you're suddenly a really great electric lead player. Uh, were you practicing that a lot or was it just something that came supernaturally? And who were you into like playing wise? Well, the, the first guy that really uh, sort of gave me insights into electric guitar was Mike Bloomfield. Yeah. And he stayed at our house when he first moved down. He showed me how to the deal with starting to sustain notes with, with, by driving the amplifier uh-huh. and all this kind of stuff. I have never, even to this day, enjoyed practicing the electric guitar by itself. If I get a new guitar or a new amp or a new amp or something, I'll plug it in to make sure it works. And then I'll wait till the band gets together. Right. And that's the way it's always, that's the way it's always been with me. Uh-huh. But we just, we rehearsed relentlessly. We, we rehearsed eight. I mean, that's all we did. And we jammed with people all the time. Uh-huh. So I had the opportunity to, to experiment with stuff constantly. And uh, I'm sort of an, I mean, in, in that era, I was sort of an atypical lead guitar player. Yeah. Even the blues has influenced me a lot. I never learned those blues solos like those guys, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and over the over the years, that that stood me in good stead. And one of the things that that you'll appreciate the humor of this is in in 2015, we put together a uh, on the 50th anniversary of the the first gigs of the Jefferson Airplane. We put together a show for Lock and where I got Rachel Price to be my grace, uh-huh. as well as as well as uh, Teresa Wood, Larry Campbell's wife. Yeah. We had Gene Smith in the band playing 12-string, and he learned Paul's parts for that nice. on a 12-string. Because nice. Paul's parts really made that thing happen. And uh, we had Jeff Pearson singing some Marty songs. Oh, man. And, and the two girls doing the girl stuff. Well, anyway, so... And I had to go back, and because we were doing some of Grace's odd stuff, like Eskimo Blue Day and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so we spent months before we got together with the girls singing, trying to put myself back into that place. And when we did White Rabbit, I kind of fudged it. <laughs> and I got to thinking about it because cause I, don't, I don't think like that anymore. 
So right. last year I got a, the, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for some of my buddies up there. I live in Ohio and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Ohio. So when they need somebody like me, here I am. So they wanted me to do this thing. They were going to do a show in, San, in, uh, in, in Columbus at a place called the Music Box. And then one of the songs they were going to do was going to be White Rabbit. And they wanted me to play the part and this girl was going to sing it. Right. And I got to thinking about it and I realized I need learn this part and so, <laughs> and so 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 i downloaded i spent 99 cents and i downloaded the song from itunes yeah and and i and this time i did plug my electric guitar in and you worked and it i out. sat on our stage and i worked it out <laughs> and i learned it and i and i learned it the way it, t- it took me two hours too that's that's a bunch of time for a short song and I looked at this today. I was just showing, we we're fooling around in a class the other day, and I was talking to the guys. They go, you know, I could never have created a solo like this today because I know too much stuff now. Right. I would never have used those odd positions, you know. Uh-huh. But just coming into it, not knowing, having the slightest idea what I was doing, I came up with a cool solo. Tell me, tell me about like, say, a session like for for White Rabbit and stuff. At that point, so it's your second record. You'd had some success. The first record wasn't a huge smash like the second one was, but no, but but it, but it got us enough to make the second one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, were you spending more time on it and like, say, uh, say a solo like that 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 is so iconic? Were you, was that something that you were working on and experimenting, or was it just like that's what came out the first take? It, it probably was a first take when when we recorded it. Um, but we were, like I said, we rehearsed a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that, that really made it, there was sort of like the wind beneath our wings to steal a metaphor was Spencer Dryden, the drummer and Jack, the bass player. Yeah. Spencer was quote unquote, a professional musician. He'd worked in LA. He'd done sessions. I mean, he, and, and Jack, also coming out of the DC area, he could also read and write too. So they could figure out parts. Mm-hmm. They figured out that sort of like Bolero esque right. uh, bass and drum thing. And then we just, they just played that and the rest of us messed around with it until we, until we came up with something and then they rolled tape and got it. Uh, so you wrote that song in, in the studio? I'm, I'm, well, the, the song wasn't written, but the arrangement certainly came together in the studio. Wow. Now, another thing that happened, too, is on that record, uh, Jerry Garcia, because of contractual things and because the guy, uh, uh, the guy who's uh, producing the record, uh, Rick Gerard, didn't want to share producer credit, even though Jerry was really active as a quote-unquote co-producer, if you will. Really? He certainly was in, as an in-studio arranger for stuff. Because Jared played in bands for years, bluegrass bands, jug bands, yeah. all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so a lot, almost all the arrangements of Surrealistic Pillow bear his handiwork really? in terms of making them short radio. I mean, it doesn't sound anything like Grateful Dead, because it's not. But I mean, uh, for example, White Rabbit, Grace brought us that song from the Great Society. It was a jam tune for them where one of the guys played like a, a soprano sax solo that lasted for, it seemed like an hour. You know? <laughs> but, I'm glad uh, you cut that. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever see that, 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 that Key and Peel thing, uh, that, one of those, you know, blog humor things where it's, uh, the, the guitar player character is going, I really screwed up the last 15 minutes of my solo. <laughs> well, 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 anyway, 
Well, anyway, Jerry made it sure that on that record, did we jam a lot in person? Yes. But there are no, those are all radio-friendly songs. Yeah. In, in any case, so on the solo to Somebody to Love, on the on that ending, you know, the, the outvamp thing, I do this, I do this little lick and the, and the last, the last little lick is a little bit flat cause it's on the wrong fret and I bend it up almost to where it's supposed to be. Yeah. That's become, and that's how it has to be played. Yeah. You got to be out of tune there. Exactly. In any case, your, your question about how long do we take? That's a serious pill was made in two weeks, including mm. Mad Drake. Wow. Okay. So relatively quickly still. Um, and, yes. then, and then you managed to get uh, your little iconic acoustic piece on there, which was a big, that was a big eye opener for me. I think that's actually what led me from the airplane to hot tuna uh, when I was a kid and checking out all that music was embryonic journey, of course, uh, which I, I, uh, you still play to this day. Um, sure. Was that something that you had to kind of like fight for to get on the record? Cause it's an oddball on there for sure. Here's the thing. I, I was, I didn't even think it belonged on the record. They, they, they were finishing up the album. Yeah. Uh, Rick George was the producer. But I was sitting out in front where the, uh, where the security guard was, and we were just talking, and I was just picking songs. And I played that song, and Rick Gerard walked by, and he says, we're, we want to cut that song, and we want to put it on the record. Wow. And I told him, you're out of, you're out of your mind. It's, <laughs> it's, we're going to make a rock record. And he says, we're going to do that. I went in. I did that, that. I did that song in one take, and you know, back in those days, they didn't have any gadgets for for delay and echo and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's drenched room echo. Back in those days, you sent a signal up to one of these concrete rooms up on the top of the, sure, uh, the echo chamber, the yeah. studio building on Ivor and Sunset, and then brought it back. And that's just, that's that record, and there it is. I, th- I thought he lost his mind. I thought it was a huge mistake. Really? But do you want to know something? I'm glad that he convinced us all. Oh my God, yeah. That's, uh, that's a huge part of that record. A lot of my favorite records from that era have something like, uh, you know, like a nice acoustic moment, like uh, Eat a Peach, for example, the Allman Brothers, there's the Little Martha. Oh, sure, yeah. And, you know, and, and, and yeah. Embryonic Journey really stands out on that record. There's a lot of great stuff, but obviously that one. So that must have given you right. a bit of confidence too in that, knowing, you know, like for as far as like a couple of years later when Hot Tuna started being a thing that like, oh, people actually do respond to this as well. You don't have to rock them to death every night. <laughs> no, you're you're absolutely right. Because to, to to dial back a number of years at Antioch College on that, that, that quarter when I was hanging out with Ian that again changed my life. They used to have a bakery. Antioch's a little town called in Western Ohio called Yellow Springs, small little town. And they had a bakery. The bakery, while they were baking, they'd have a bunch of people just go around and they'd have song circles. And it would go from like one in the morning to six in the morning. So Ian and I would go over there. And most of the, most of the players were like doing Joan Baez songs or mm-hmm. bluegrass songs, old timey stuff. I remember Ian would go and he said, let's play some finger style blues will clear the room and it worked every time <laughs> the good news the good news is that it does no longer clears the room yeah it brings packs them in man <laughs> so for, for people you know because i sort of there's sort of like that redheaded stepchild kind of thing you know so to find that people actually wanted to hear and i'm not the only guy that plays played acoustic guitar back in those days for all of us was like wow how cool is this yeah yeah 
And the, and the open tuning, I think that's in, in G tuning, right? Uh, was the open tuning? Oh, no, it's just, no, it's just drop D. Just oh, it drop is? D. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Um, but you've been experimenting with open tunings as well, obviously. Well, you know, here's another interesting thing, too. The only the only open tuning that I've really spent any time with is G. Okay. Uh, and G, like all my my blues playing buddies that use G tuning, it's a blues tuning for me. It's a pretty tuning to write pretty songs like Water Song, right? Or you know stuff like that. But Drop D, I learned Drop D in 1963 from a guy named Roger Perkins that played what became Good Shepherd, uh, and Roger's passed away since too. But I've had a chance to run to his brother in the last five to six years, I tell him, your brother changed my life with Drop D because I've written lots of songs with it. I like to play in it. Mm-hmm. And of course, of course, way after the fact, I found out that that Good Shepherd, that's not really the name of the song. The real, the real song is called Blood Strained Banders. It's by a guy named Jimmy Struther, and it's about the Ku Klux Klan. Oh. But who knew? Who knew? That's not what I heard. That's not what I heard when I heard the song in 1963. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell me a little bit about how uh, Hot Tuna f- formed? Like, obviously, you and, and um, uh, like, Kantner was involved a little bit in Hot Tuna for a while, right? And then and you and Jack Cassidy obviously have been involved from the beginning. But was it sort of meant as a way for you to be able to express yourself acoustically in the middle of playing in a big, huge rock band? Well, Paul was never was never a part. I don't think Paul was actually. Uh, Marty was part of the early, one of the early electric incarnations oh, okay but what paul, but what paul did for us though was i remember i think it might have been at the fillmore east when he just said why don't you guys play this was way before hot tuna was hot tuna why don't you guys play a song and i remember i got up on the mic because i didn't we did that pickup back then yeah i just got up on the mic and jack played his electric bass and we played I, who knows what it was I don't know. I don't remember. Could have been uh, Hesitation Blues or something. I don't know. Yeah. And and the crowd liked it. So Paul certainly gave us opened the door for us to do that. And the audience response, I think, was in, gave us the courage to proceed with that as an entity. Right. Um. And so after after that, he let us do that a whole bunch of times. You know. Okay. Now, to hunt into the acoustic thing, you know, it started us. Uh, with uh, with Will Scarlett playing harmonica, mm-hmm. uh, Will Will was just supposed to be on one song on New Song in the Morning, but you know how harmonica players are. <laughs> he he came he came at sound check and didn't leave for three days, <laughs> so he sort of he sort of became a de facto member of the band for a while. Yeah. Now when we started to pull around with electric stuff before Hot Tuna became Hot Tuna. We had a thing where, where my brother played the band briefly. A guy named Paul Ziegler played the band. Uh-huh. Marty sang. Joey Covington was the drummer. He sang. And I'm not sure what we intended to happen with that. Uh, the airplane was going through a phase. That, uh, Grace was just, I think she was either pregnant with China or she just had China. Mm-hmm. The airplane wasn't working very much. And we just needed to work. Okay. And so we just did a bunch of stuff that, that happened. Now, the, the, uh, the Owsley Stanley Foundation has just come up with some 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 tapes that they're going to release soon of me, Jack, and Joey just jamming. We don't even really have any songs. Just jamming at a, at a gig in Santa Rosa. Hmm. And let me tell you something. I mean, I, I go, I couldn't, play, I couldn't play like that today. My life depended on it. And once again, we're just chasing each other around, 
playing like jazz stuff, but with chain. I mean, I don't even know what to call it. You know, were you playing electric? I told Jack, I, oh no, we're playing electric. It's absolutely. I mean, you know, you know, Joey became a, a drummer in the airplane, and in that era, in my opinion, I don't mean disrespect by this. His playing with the airplane he was just a rock drummer playing in a rock band. Right. You know, the latter stage of the airplane. But this stuff we're doing that you'll hear whenever that record comes out or that CD comes out, it's like, holy shit. I mean, it, it blew my mind because you can't remember stuff that you did. Yeah. People go, do you ever think about, like, I couldn't play like that again if my life depended on it. Right. <laughs> and again, it's probably because I know too much stuff now. Yeah, yeah. So how did Hot Tuna evolve? In, like, how did it come about with that first record where you became an acoustic thing, even though even, right. even though there was electric bass, you were playing acoustic guitar. How did that evolve then? Well, you know, because of the airplane, God bless the airplane. Now, because of the airplane, we and some of the other people in the band got a chance to do a side project. And like I said, all those songs that are on the first record were songs that I learned from Ian in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And Jack and I had played them in hotel rooms over the last years. And so it was a perfect storm for recording that most guys never get to do we went into doing a three-day recording session at the New Orleans house, and we knew the material backwards and forwards. Right. I mean, uh, you, just never, you just never get a chance. To, normally, you just learn the stuff in the studio when you're doing it. I mean, no matter how rehearsed you are. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so we, we got a chance to go in, and we had the great Al Schmidt was, was, was the producer. Oh, cool. Uh, and, his brother, and his brother, Richie, engineering it. Uh, and Owsley was hanging around. He's not a... He didn't really have anything to do with the the actual um, recording of that, but he was there, and, and his his two cents worth were worth way more than two cents. <laughs> and, and that was that, you know. I mean, again, it was just like. But there's but there's an audience there, right? It's a it's a gig, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's just it's it's just, it was just a seedy bar in Berkeley. And and were you billed as Hot Tuna? Like, did Hot Tuna even exist at that point, or was that what became Hot Tuna? That, that's a good question. And that's a really good question. I'm gonna I'm gonna venture a guess and say yes. Okay. Because Jack and I had been have been doing some playing, but I, you know, if somebody hears this and go, no, you got to check this out. Uh, <laughs> and the answer wrong. is, I think so. Okay. I they, I could be wrong. Now, I think so. I now, think so. Now tell me. So for for that first hot tuna record it sounds to me so there's obviously electric bass jack's playing electric bass you sound to me like you're not playing through a pickup at all is, is that the case that is the case okay because the pickups didn't exist yet and you're gonna love this um betty Cantor, who's a, a recording engineer uh and some of her friends made me a rosewood clamp it clamped to the lower bow of my acoustic guitar. I had a gooseneck on it and held a Sennheiser condenser mic. So I had this this, oh. this contraption okay. with a microphone in front of my sound hole. Oh, okay. So you could you could move around and the mic would be in position. Yeah. I'm not much of a mover, but if I had to move, I could, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, because it's a beautiful sounding acoustic. So was it being amplified through that as well into the house? Because that's like, there's no... No, it just went, it just went straight. It went through, went through a, a preamp uh, and went straight into the house. Wow, amazing. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds great. Yeah, and, and I think about stuff like that too, because, you know, I, I, you know, I, play, uh, I play plugged in all the time, as we all do, you know. Yeah. yeah. And we're, we're always trying to find the right thing. Like, like I've been using a, a Bags lyric through a, a, a Grace Felix preamp in one of my guitars, and I use a uh, 
uh, a Fishman uh, Matrix Infinity through an Aura, one of the other ones, yeah. you know, and and they're okay, they're okay. Mm-hmm. But they still sound as good as that that microphone in front of that yeah. J fifty. Yeah, it sounded killer. So that was a J fifty, and and it definitely sounds like you're using finger picks. Were you finger picking? Oh, I, I I can't I can't play without them. I can't play without them. And you still use them? Because I, I saw you a few weeks ago, and I, I didn't. Oh know. yeah. Oh okay, I didn't realize you had them on. Okay. So, so hot tune has sort of fluctuated between electric and acoustic over the years. But uh, could sure. you t- tell me a, um, a little bit about um, Papa John Creech and how he got involved? Because, like, man, what oh, a man. what a guy and what a history! Like playing with totally. like, Louis Armstrong and man, like how how did that even happen? As I recall, and I keep in mind what a fragile thing memory is, but as I recall, uh, Joey Covington and Marty Ballon met him at some club in LA, I think it was the Paris club in La Brea, but I'm, I almost swear to that, but, but they brought him to us. Okay. We're doing a gig in, in Winterland. They brought him, said, introduced, this is Papa John Creech. He plays violin. Can he jam? We <laughs> said, yes. He became de facto member of the airplane and hot to Okay. So and he, he was just a guy that showed up and never left. And that's correct. <laughs> and, one of the cool things about him, I mean, he was, you know, he had, he had arthritis when he was very young. So he always had, um, he'd always look like an older guy. Yeah. And of course to us, you know, us being in our, um, in our thirties, uh, a guy in his fifties is kind of funny seemed really old. You right. know? Yeah. But, but, but Papa John, I mean, you know, you mentioned some of the people he played with. He also played classical music. He had no musical boundaries. He just loved to play. And, you know, one of the many things that I think that I learned from him is just, you know, if you get a chance to play, pick up your instrument and play, it's going to be fine. He really kind of seemed to spark you guys off, too, like like a, a lot of really interesting improvisational things that I've heard. And Oh, he was awesome. He was, he was awesome. He was, kind he, of, really he was kind of reckless in a cool way, and I just love his love Oh, his totally, yeah. totally, totally, totally. Um, yeah, that's a good dude. He, that's really nice. He was reckless in a cool way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd mentioned an earlier manager, which was cool to hear about, but I know you guys were also managed, just backing up for one second, by Bill Graham for a while. I just wondered Correct. if you had any great Bill Graham stories, because that guy is such a crazy character, and, and there's so many stories about him. Well, first of all, we, we, didn't, we didn't work together for long because we didn't take direction well. Okay. And, and Bill, Bill liked to be driving the bus at all times. Right. But one of my, one of my favorite... You know, a funny stuff. I mean, Bill is a great guy, you know, and and a lot of the stuff that happened must be attributed to him. However, one of my favorite things is we played Tanglewood. Check this bill out: opening act, BB King; second act, The Who; lead act, Jefferson Airplane. Oh my God! I mean, I know. Well, for me, it was like, especially being such a BB fan, I thought BB should the headline. But anyway, <clears throat> so. <clears throat> We were up there for a couple of days surrounding this gig. <clears throat> Wait, what year would this? And be? I remember. Oh gosh, I've got the poster at the ranch. Oh boy, like late sixties or um, early seventies. Oh no, late sixties, okay. late sixties. Okay. So anyway, so I remember a, a party in a hotel room where, aside from for the cast of characters, <clears throat> involved members of the Jefferson Airplane, Keith Moon and <laughs> Bill Graham. <laughs> Anything you can share about that? Well, I would, you know, well, you know, with nitrous oxide, all kinds of odd stuff happens. But <laughs> I, I, I guess the only, the only thing I can sort of half share is 
I think that I thought that I'd solved the secrets of the universe, but when I sobered up, I couldn't remember it anymore. You probably had. You probably had. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, and now it's all gone. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, my God. Uh, and so eventually you guys had to part ways with him because he was just too much, or what, what happened? Yeah, well, he did, like, like I said, he just wanted to do things his way, and that's not the way we did things. Right. Weirdly, with the airplane's performance at Woodstock, there's been sort of confl- yeah. conflicting rumor, rumors about it being a nightmare gig. And some people have told me, I talked to Tommy Shannon, who played there with Johnny Winter. And uh, I'm just curious, you know, like from somebody that was actually there, what that experience was like as a player, like as a musician. Uh, right. Was it just a total gong show or was it uh, a good experience for you? I guess there's sort of a conflicted answer there because... I'll never get a chance to play in front of half a million people again as long as I live. Right. So there's that as there's that aspect to it. Uh, we went on 18 hours late, <laughs> um, and and everything was so disorganized because of, because because it was Woodstock that if you had a gig like that today, you go this gig sucks. Right. But for me, because it was Woodstock, I mean, it was just, I mean, it just seemed to be part of what was going on. Yeah, I saw one of the great one of the great live band shows of my life there, and that was Santana's performance. Oh man, it's yeah, that, never, that was a I'll, huge one for me too. Just seeing that when I was a kid, I'll never I'll never forget that. You know, see, I knew Michael Street before he got to Santana, and this is funny stuff. Uh, he was a, I think my brother might have introduced me to him. Street, uh, he was like fifteen or something, right? At, at that time, he was a kid. He was a kid. Yeah, and and he came and. And we and he we came to LA with us and we played, and I remember I forget I think it might have been Cantor said oh, I don't know man he's too young. <laughs> anyway, next time we heard him, it was at Woodstock. He was not too young. But in any case, uh, yeah man, what a I got to see Santana, and then we went over we went on late and all this stuff. Uh, if you had to work a gig like that today, it would be a nightmare gig. Mm-hmm. But since it was Woodstock, it was Woodstock. Yeah. And and at the time, did it feel pretty special, or did it just feel like, oh man, I got to get out of here? Where's the helicopter? <laughs> I, well, see, here's the thing. Also, you know, we we drove in there. We we didn't come in in the helicopters. We drove in in station wagons. Yeah. And we finished our performance. We drove out in station wagons and went to New York to do the Dick Cavett show. Oh, okay. I mean, there's you, you can't deny the specialness of it, just because for the first time. And this stuff sounds so archaic by today's standards. And I talked to my kids about stuff like this. I said, you may never get an us and them identity like we got back then. Right. You know, because there was, in that moment, there, there was, a, there was a, an us feeling. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now, did it last? Did I, I mean, who knows? We could argue about that forever. But in that moment, it happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've talked to a bunch of guys from... from you know, sixties era Nashville, the recording scene here and guys, sure. from, guys from New York. I have not talked to anyone really from the San Francisco scene. And, and I'm, I'm just curious if you could like, give me just a bit of insight into what the, what your day to day life was like right in the heart of it, like 67, 68. Like I know you guys had bought a house and you were all kind of living together right. and, and I assume jamming, but was there a lot of you know, cross pollinization and and partying and stuff going on with all with all those bands as well. Sure, sure, of course. Be and and and, then, and the reason was, you know, like like when I was doing my book, and you'll appreciate this. You know, the publisher, if he said it once, he said it twenty times. Don't you have any more stories about Jerry Garcia? And my answer was, listen, 
we were just the guys and the gals. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like, wow, I'm going to get a chance to spend the time with Jerry. So I need to remember every moment, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, but no, but we were all friends and we did hang out together a lot. We did play. Now, since you mentioned the other recording scenes around the country, and I think this is important too. I mean, Nashville, you know, I have a lot of friends in Nashville and stuff like that. I mean, Nashville has always been such a consummately, for better or worse, professional music scene. So back in the day, Nashville, Chicago, New York, L.A., these were all professional scenes where people went to, to cut the gigs yeah. and they, they, they were reading charts and doing this and doing that. One of the things I think that, that the San Francisco bands in general felt like when we went to when we went to LA, the LA session guys at the time looked at us as guys that didn't know what the hell we were doing. Right. And they were and they were right and they were right by their standards, you know? Uh Now, all that being said, it worked out okay for us because we wound up doing original sounding stuff. Yeah, totally. If you listen if you if you listen to a band like Big Brother, Big Brother was was and, and, and even some of the airplane stuff, too. We were charming in our ineptitude, you know? <laughs> and we, we weren't trying to sound like anybody else. We weren't slick like the mamas and the papas. We, we, weren't, we weren't doing a show like Paul Revere and the Raiders. Right. And I'm not critical of these acts. I'm not, this is not a musical, musical criticism. You know, our stuff was always much more organic. Now, when you're making a record, you've got to get the record done and you have to rein some of this stuff in. Yeah. Yeah. But as a result, there was a there was a lot of experimentation, certainly on our part, and some of us worked better. Some of it worked better than others. Yeah. But the social scene uh, in San Francisco, you know, you need to remember also, San Francisco was a small town back then. Right. Now it's you know it's 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 overflowing now because of all the stuff that's happening. It was a small town that was a and you'll laugh at this. It was a cheap place to live. Really. Yeah. That's hilarious when you think about. Oh, yeah, I bet, I bet you wish you still had that uh, house down at Haight Ashbury, right about now. Well, yeah, <laughs> or the house that I bought in St. Francis Wood. I bought a house in St. Francis Wood for I don't know sixty-five thousand bucks. <laughs> when my ex-wife and I sold it, we got probably three fifty for it. And now, and this is a tiny house with no yard. It's probably worth two and a half million bucks today. Probably, yeah. Anyway, oh, anyway, yeah. anyway, you know, yeah, <laughs> stuff. But in any case, yeah. So the social scene, there was a lot of cross-pollinization. Did it affect the way, and, and the, the, the bands that come to mind to me, because we did, because we were friends, was Big Brother, yeah. The Grateful Dead, and us. Because yeah. we because we, we started out as buddies in the folk era, and we were buddies in the rock and roll era. Now, when our careers got in the way, did we hang out as much? No, not as much. But when we were home, especially when we had the big house and stuff, we hung out a lot. Did we consciously cross-pollinate the answer? Probably not. Uh-huh. Were we listening to what each other were doing and trying to learn more stuff at all times? Absolutely. Right. And and those big, like the big events that would happen, like the Keezy stuff and all that, um, those were all, that yeah. was sort of like all-inclusive, right? That was all you guys, like the bands would, would sure. jam together and, and stuff like that. Now, since you mentioned the Keezy stuff, one of the bands that we haven't mentioned that we that you that we need to get it is the is uh, is the charlatans. Now the charlatans there there's a video you can get. Rock Roll Hall of Fame's got it. It's called Rockin' at the Red Dog. You need to check this out okay. because that's really where the scene started. The charlatans were a bunch of students from the San Francisco Art Institute. 
that wound up being a house band at the Red Dogs Saloon in Virginia City, Nevada. And when they came back down to San Francisco, their quote-unquote managers started a managerial group called the Family Dog, and they put on the first dance concert at Longshoreman's Hall. People forget about them. I mean, I can't believe that I just remembered this right now myself. Because we've been talking about the bands that became famous later on. The Charlottes yeah. never did. Uh-huh. But they're, they're the ones that started this, the Edwardian dress, the, uh-huh. uh, the, the buying stuff at thrift stores, uh, all of us playing the electric auto harp, auto harp on stage. Uh-huh. Check it out. Okay. Interesting. And and were they buddies with Kesey as well? Like, was that sort of the beginning of that scene? Well, they they were they were really buddies with Kesey because they were they they put the first dance on. The reason I thought about this, they put the first dance on at, at the Longshoreman's Hall, and Kesey and the guys did the acid test there later on. And were you involved in the in the what's known as the acid test shows? Like, was that? I was, we were not. Okay. We were not. That was more dead. It was. Right. Okay. As far as what you're up to now, you put out a record, I don't know, it's probably been three or four years now since that. Um, Ain't no hurry. In no hurry, yeah. Do you have another record in the works? That's a good question. Uh, Red House Records was bought by Compass Records. Yep. And National Company, great company. I, I fulfilled my obligations to Red House. Mm-hmm. And I, I was talking to uh, the Compass people. I go, look. You know, at this point in my life, I can always put out a record myself, but I like being on a label. I like what they do. Mm-hmm. You guys want me to do a record? They're still sorting out all the, the stuff for the merger. But uh, give me a call or we'll talk. Uh, Hot Tuna still owes uh, Red House a record, which means we owe Compass a record. Oh. So at some point we'll do this. Um, the cool. answer is I would love to put out another record. I, I don't really have songs for it right now, but I'm yeah. always working on stuff. Sure. And, uh, if I get the opportunity, you bet I will. Absolutely. Fantastic. And you got the book coming out. That's exciting. It is exciting. I can't believe I actually finished the damn thing. That must have been a lot of work. Like, was it, uh, did it, was it a a hard thing or was it just really easy to let all that stuff flow? You know, I've been journaling and blogging for a number of years, but that's not the same writing a book. Right. So the the actual writing it down, it took me about a year and a half. The, The work came with the editing that needed to be done later on. Yeah. Uh, but the, the people at St. Martin's Press, uh, my publishing company, they really gave me a lot of help, you know. And, and one of the things was, is that uh, with my blogs and stuff like that, I'd kind of wait for something to tweak my libido or my emotions or whatever, and I'd write something about it. But when you're writing a book, you can't wait for that to happen. You need to get it done. Right. And so I heard a thing, I think it was Terry Gross Fresh Air, was interviewing somebody some guy from some Hollywood guy that's a writer or producer that does all kinds of stuff. And she asked him that question. Do you, you know, do you wait for inspiration? And he said, if I, with all the things I need to do in my professional life, I can't wait for inspiration. I make the process be my inspiration. Interesting. And I took that to heart and I made it work for me also. Mm-hmm. So instead of waiting, you know, to have some brilliant thing that you're waiting to write down, I just sit down and start writing, you know, and then and then work on editing later on. Yeah. And I found I found that flowed relatively easy for me. And and did you find like a lot of memories came back to you once you started actually putting yourself back in those like things that you oh, yeah of course um, yeah yeah of course and of course, and then what's even funnier is now that the book is finished even more memories came back but now the book's done <laughs> volume two man 
have to do part two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time and telling me all this stuff today. It's great to hear. And, and I'm just a real fan, awesome. of, fan of what you've done uh, musically throughout the years. So thank you. Like they say, we, we, we musicians only complain about two things, having a gig and not having a gig. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Thanks so much, Yorma. Yeah, man. All right. Take care, bro. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That was my conversation with Yorma Kaukinen. Hope you enjoyed it. See you next month for another episode. Yeah. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.